0: there space fans and welcome to a new episode of the supercluster podcast i'm here with my colleague jamie from supercluster creative lead and peter cleman the founder of the space age museum and a photographer artist designer peter you wear a lot of hats and uh, we're happy to have you on the show we've been in communication for a little while now and i've been really wanting to have you on all of us at supercluster we're space fans but we're also geeks when it comes to antiques trinkets just things from the space program that have a story behind them. And we're excited to geek out with you today. And that's why I've asked Jamie to join. Jamie's more versed on this stuff than I am, but let's talk about everything. And Peter, first tell us about the Space Age Museum. It's not a brick and mortar museum. It's more of a, a traveling exhibit, right? Uh, it's
1: Well, first of all, hi, it's great to be here. Hello. Thanks for having Hello. me. And yes, I, I love talking about the material culture of the space age, so I'm, I'm delighted to share in that process with you. Space Age Museum is an ongoing evolution of a long project that started about 30 years ago as a father-son hobby that I began when I was around eight years old with, with my dad and, and my mother was involved as well. But it was, it was often my dad and I were going off early mornings to antique shows and flea markets and that kind of thing. So, it it originally started off as a passion project, but it quickly evolved into something bigger and a service-oriented project to preserve and present these important cultural history artifacts, which we didn't see other institutions really focusing on in the same way that we felt they deserved you know, that kind of attention for. So, we have a private collection that's on display in a 100-year-old hay barn on a dirt road in rural Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And we do offer traveling exhibits. We have loaned pieces to other major museums, and we are now looking to raise money to
0: open up a physical location that would be accessible to the public. That sounds incredible, and something that I would love to go to. Peter, where are you guys trying to put this brick and mortar location?
1: You know, that's that's up for discussion right now. I live in the Catskills region of upstate New York, and I love it here. And I think there's a lot of qualities about this area, which I think lend themselves well to a permanent location for this collection, particularly the proximity to New York City as an international global hub. Mm -hmm. But also just we have a broader vision of creating a, a campus that could be an institute for the future that would run other programming related to the Space Age Museum collection where we could have conferences, workshops, retreats, that kind of thing. And I think having like the, the open space where we could expand a campus over time as funding allows would be ideal. And so, where land is available and potentially affordable is, is an important consideration as well Especially as, in these times. Especially in these times, yes. Mm-hmm. And there's... The pandemic is definitely bring up a lot of big questions about where the museum should be and what form it should take. And before that, you know, honestly, climate change was a big factor in that consideration as well. You know, I really think about this as a time capsule gift to the future that I'm trying to create that if humanity can last 500 years or longer, I hope this collection can last that long and be a resource for future generations. So I think about droughts, water, access to other resources, wildfires, earthquakes, tsunamis, that kind of thing. And that that limits some of the geographic areas where Mm. I would put a museum. And I think the Catskills are a very resilient landscape with great water and so far have not been drastically impacted by the the harsh forefront of climate change. So that is one of the other benefits of it. It it can be a journey for people to get to. It's a Mm. little more remote. So that brings up another question about who it is accessible to and how we can make that as equal as possible.
0: So basically you're trying to have a location and it sounds like you don't want, you want a little bit more than a museum here. You're looking for a place that people can share their excitement for space exploration and and these items that you put on display, but also a place to keep these things safe and keep them accessible for the long term. Is that what you're saying?
1: Definitely, preserving them for the long term is mm-hmm. number one. Making them accessible to people as an educational and inspirational tool is close second. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know, there's there's a lot of different dynamic facets to the space age that which I think make it so special. And I think even though it's a history that I'm looking at, there's a lot of those aspects are extremely relevant for where we are in the world right now. One is it. The space age gave us a planetary perspective, which helps us think about our context in the universe on this planet floating in space. And as I said, I think the environmental awareness that accompanies that is huge and needs to be developed. Number two is that with the space age, in tandem and in close relationship, is this other cultural phenomenon of of people imagining the future in a technologically advanced way using imagination, creativity, art. And I think that intellectual, philosophical, artistic practice of imagining the future is is something that could be cultivated further as a tool that would really
0: serve society and and how we move forward with intention. I hundred percent agree with you, and I, and I think some of that falls in line with why we created Supercluster. I mean, we do have an exciting future in space to look forward to, and it is a tool to educate and inspire the younger generations that will hopefully, be working in space in, in the next generations. Peter, what are, what are you doing right now to preserve that collection?
1: It's, it's a challenge. Right now, and, and basically for the last 30 years, we've been storing it in my parents' 100-year-old hay barn and farmhouse in rural Connecticut. And so we've got some really large items that could not fit in the house, and so they go into a, an old hay barn that has a good roof but no climate control. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's dry, but you know, humidity and temperatures, something we can't regulate at this point, but it's, it's better than having these items out in the elements where a lot of them sat for, for decades before we were able to acquire them. Right. The more delicate, smaller items, lithograph toys, paper items, photographs, that kind of thing, fabric, textile materials. Those are
0: packed into my parents' farmhouse. Wow. Wow. Let's definitely not give the address out on this podcast. <laughs> no, we, we never, we never
1: do. We, we're not open to the public, uh, so it's yeah. not advertised on our site. And right. any listeners will have to see the collection online. And if you know, we we open up to for tours to industry professionals and press on occasion. But as my parents are in their seventies and slowing down, especially with the right. pandemic, yeah. uh, they definitely don't want people showing up at their doorstep at this point. Right, right. Of course.
0: Just on this point, you brought up climate change and having access to a brick and mortar building to store and display these items. But climate change would affect the lifespan of these items now before that, just with how hot it is and, and everything else. And another thing that I was thinking about was in preserving these items, I feel like there should be some kind of effort from public funding or the government or something like that to try and help you do this. Has there been, have you tried to communicate with any like national institutions or anything like that. A bit, and I appreciate you recognizing
1: that. To this day, I've not received much in the way of any outside funding, but I am mm-hmm. I eagerly welcome it. I'm mm. in the process of strategizing how best to form a nonprofit organization mm. for the next phase of this project. I mean, I have worked with the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum the chair of the space history department who leads the social and cultural dimensions of spaceflight collection, Dr. Margaret Weidekamp, right. came and visited the collection about 10 years ago. And I interned with her last summer in DC for about 10 weeks. Wow. And so she, she recognizes the importance of the, que- of the collection and has been very supportive in my endeavors to preserve it better and make it more accessible But, you know, as far as teaming up with donors or charitable organizations or sponsors to make this next big move, something I'm really trying to position myself for right now, but I don't have anything specific lined up.
2: Do you also have an eye towards, you know, I know that obviously the first step is this preservation, but do you also think about the sort of conservation and rehabilitation side of things? Do, Do you have any intention to kind of bring some of these items back to their factory new condition, for example?
1: That's a really good question, and it's and it's a conversation that we've had with a lot of different specialists in various fields. And you know, you see this in the antique car collection and motorcycles, other other areas of antiques and collectibles. That some people want to restore things to look like they did when they were on the showroom floor or brand new. Some people even over restore them to a point where they're they're brighter and glossier than when they were originally manufactured. And other people are trying to just encapsulate the the level of wear and decay and patina that has accumulated thus far. Mm. There's a lot of debate around what's what's the best practice at this point. And my impression from what I heard at Smithsonian was that they wouldn't go back and repaint a historic aircraft and spacecraft mm. the way they did 15, 20, 30 years ago and, and longer ago. I had some guests from Yale, a few, I guess about a year and a half ago, who came and looked at one of our larger rockets, which we've, we've debated restoring if we had a sponsor for the project. It's about a 55 foot long rocket trailer from the 50s that was based on the Space Patrol Terra 4 rocket ship. And oh, wow. it sat in the desert for 40, 50 years and is, you know, it's sun faded and doesn't have the original silver and red paint showing it's more of like a bleached white. But what we what we saw is that it looks like somebody potentially painted the white over the the silver and red. And so when these art conservators were looking at it with us, uh, as far as considering what, what would be an appropriate approach to, to restoring it or not, is that there might be a way to use the right solvent to, re, to remove that, right. that layer of white to reveal the silver and red, but not necessarily repaint the whole thing.
0: What's um, your convention, Peter?
1: My convention is that... I, I like the story that Patina and Ware tell. You know, we have a rocket mm-hmm. playground climber that has four or five different layers of paint and the way it's chipped away in different patterns, you can see those different colors. It gives a character, character, doesn't it? It gives a character. It tells a story. It's, it's like this distressed future, this, this mm-hmm. aged future. It shows mm-hmm. the life cycle and the experience of, of the object. And I think that tells an important story of history and it's something that people can relate to. I think that's part of what made Star Wars so compelling to so many people is that it
0: showed this like textured, right. aged it future. Li- it was lived in. It was yes. a lived in place. And you're absolutely right with the Star Wars reference there. I think one of the reasons we love that first film so much is the cantina is like a, just a normal, shitty bar. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. like, I think yeah and it's hovercraft like it,
2: across the desert is just like right. a out back that's busted Right. Right. It's, the, it's rusty a rusty, and- old... Car, it's like right. missing
0: a
1: panel here and there.
0: It's got a dent right. in it. Yeah, yeah. It gives a character. Now, I think we've teased our listeners enough here. Peter, just start telling us what are what are some of the coolest things you have? Oh man, I'm I'm bad at ultimates, but I mean we have
1: things that go back to the early '30s. So some of the first items we collected were the first ray guns ever made for Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon comics mm-hmm. and TV shows. But we also have things like futuristic space-age furniture from the 60s and 70s, which is pretty fun and out there. Mm -hmm. But beyond those commercially manufactured items, I I get pretty excited about these folk art one-of-a-kind pieces that somebody felt compelled to make in their workshop or backyard. And so we have, for instance, a 12-foot flying saucer that a gentleman made behind his auto repair shop in Arkansas back in the 1970s, and he studied electromagnetic propulsion. And thought this was gonna fly and people he was famous. He was on real people and his community cherished him. And so those personal stories of how, how a guy felt compelled to have his own experience engaging in space exploration is what really speaks to me at this point. So yeah. if I find something that's that has that an entrepreneurial
0: to- spirit
2: there. Exactly. Well, pure, pure inspiration, even the need to do something, to see what's going on mm-hmm. in the world and say, I got to make this part of my life one way or another is, is really right. interesting.
1: And that's, that's been my story. I mean, I, when I was in first grade, people asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said, I want to be an astronaut because I had just seen a couple of shuttle launches on TV and pictures of somebody floating in space. And that looked cool to me. And I loved Star Wars. And they said, well, very few people actually get to fly in space and be astronauts. And, I, I didn't want to let go of that dream. And because I was also into Indiana Jones, I decided, you know, I'm, maybe I'll, I'll be the treasure hunter, Indiana Jones of the,
0: of the space age. And so I've had my- I believe that, that you are, man. I yeah. believe that you are. Yeah, I'm looking, I looked through your collection a little bit, what's available online. And I can't help but think of all the work that you and your family must have gone through to collect some of these items. Do you have an interesting story of collecting one of these things. I watch those television shows on like Discovery and stuff where they're, you know, American Pickers and stuff like that. And I know that, you know, not super realistic. I just like, what's the process of even getting one of these items? I appreciate you
1: recognizing that. And I do watch Pickers every once in a while and I relate to their mm-hmm. adventures. And I, I yeah. it really has felt like the, the American Pickers of the space age for me. Mm-hmm. And we've jumped in dumpsters. We've been in in, Aviation boneyards with snakes, you know, high in the weeds. We've been in freezing cold weather. We've been in sweltering hot weather. I mean, we're, we've been pretty dedicated and it can be in a lot of what we did started, you know, 10, 15 years before there was an internet at all, let alone eBay or an internet marketplace. So we had right. close to 20 years of looking at D- classical. <laughs> 20 yeah. years of
0: analog search. Basically. That's yeah. crazy to me. Where would you even start without the internet? to find one of these pieces. There was magazines and stuff that, and people, I don't know, they put out classifieds. Like how do you even find an object before the internet?
1: Yeah, okay, so there were classifieds. I mean, there was like an amusement business newspaper that came out and they would have classifieds Mm -hmm. in the back. So a lot of the old spaceship amusement rides that were being retired would go into these back lots and people would sell them. Mm -hmm. So we got a couple of our early rocket rides in that way. We went to tons of antique shows, toy shows, different cl- kinds of collectible shows. There was a big one that happened once or twice a year in Atlantic City where people came from all over the world. And we formed a network. We we made friends with dealers and collectors. They got to know us. They know what we were looking for. We kept in touch. People would mail us 35 millimeter Kodak prints in the mail of things they had for sale. We'd open the envelope, look through the prints, then get on the phone, talk about it. You know, there was it was before emails, before digital pictures, and so we there was this process. You know, somebody would go in their backyard and take take a couple shots, develop the film, get the prints, mail it to us, and we have a conversation. It was a very different experience than what you see now, as far as like the two clicks and you're it's coming in right. the mail.
0: Right. Yeah. A Facebook message away to getting something, but back then, geez, snail mail and. crazy.
2: Yeah. One thing I was curious about is your perspective on the current art and design world as it relates to this sort of new golden age of space. Because we've, of course, have been thinking a lot about the return to US soil of spaceflight and the way that this might have a new inspiration and the popularity of SpaceX and all that. Do you see that reflected in things that are being made now?
1: Yes, I do. It's outside of my realm of collecting for the most part, because it is contemporary. And I'm I focus on things I think need to be preserved because they're overlooked and are at risk of being lost or discarded. But I am, right. I'm definitely energized and, and given a lot of hope by this this recent trend in you know NASA themed fashion. A lot of space art happening, uh, both at like a pop culture level and at a fine art level. I really like what Tom Sachs does, and it seems like it's. It's speaking to people in a lot of good ways that is, is rallying public interest in space exploration again. And the way that SpaceX is, is doing their press and PR and digital content, I think, is, is more accessible and more exciting and engaging for people in a way that maybe NASA didn't resonate as much in the, in the last few decades.
0: Since you brought up SpaceX, are you following the company's progress and what's going on with them regularly?
1: Yes. I... I wouldn't say on a daily basis, but definitely regularly. And I I use the Supercluster app to see when launches are going to happen and make sure I tune in. Nice. So I appreciate Thank that you. resource.
2: <laughs> Even though your collection is focused on a different era and time, it's clear that, you know, these things are going to resonate now more than maybe they have in the past few decades because we are seeing that increased interest. So I think that it's, it's kind of the perfect time to be looking back at your collection and, and moving it forward.
1: Yeah, I think that, We don't always recognize the deepest meaning of an experience when we're having it. And so, as a society, we now have a large enough gap of time that we can look back and reflect on the implications of what we now see as this evolution into a space fearing species. And this material culture is just a great visual aid for engaging
0: in that process. Absolutely. Now, Peter, let's talk a little bit about pop culture right now, because you've obviously collected a lot of these amazing items from pop culture throughout the decades. Let's look at the 20, Is Are we in the 2020s? We're in the 2020s. So whatever that's called. It's called the pandemic. <laughs> the pandemic, right. Pandemic
2: yeah, age. The age of no reasons.
0: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Peter, some of the recent films, maybe the last 10 years, some films that speak to the space age of what's happening now. Anything you'd like to collect from any of the films or TV shows, do uh, add I mean, I don't even know if you like any of them. Do you like any of the new stuff? I do. I like a lot of it.
1: I will say that I'm because I grew up in the early eighties, that that era of late seventies and eighties science fiction and that level of practical effects mm-hmm. mixed with early. Attention to effects. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. I feel like the I find that just really compelling and I get lost in it. And in a way that a lot of the CGI of the 2000s hasn't really transported yeah. me as well. Yeah, uh, the CGI that. is improving to a point where I, I am getting transported much more easily now. And, and some
0: folks are going back to practical effects
2: here and there yeah i think people are slowly learning what cg is and isn't good for but i Mm -hmm. think that even even beyond that simply the even if it looks really realistic and is really fantastic i echo your sentiment about how practical effects just light up your imagination in a better way a deeper way because even though you know that it's a puppet you know that it existed that it was there on set that it did that thing and that's kind of fantastic on its own even if you know it's fake
0: absolutely and that
2: that object
0: has already had an impact on millions you know what yeah. i mean that, that that item my personal fave thing that i want to get my hands on is something from the set of the reimagined Battlestar galactica oh, the wow. the ron moore one the love the way they they cut the edges of the paper because they had to cut corners on their budget their weapons were very odd, like their hand, their pistols. I just love that stuff because it was practical, and they did a lot of practical effects on Valstar.
1: Yeah, no, BSG is great, and I'm I've been thinking about going back and revisiting it once I'm finished with graduate school and have a little bit more entertainment time on my hands again. It's it's definitely one of the better contemporary narratives. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll say, I, I, I mean, I grew up with both Star Wars and Star Trek, but in in recent years, you know, I'd say like the last decade. I've, I've become much more of a fan of of Star Trek than I ever was as a kid. And mm-hmm. I just, I love Star Trek Next Generation. I love Deep Space Nine. I love Voyager. Uh, I, I really like
0: the Discovery series that they've launched. Peter, it's we have on. to have you on for a Star Trek podcast. Because okay. if you're well-versed on if you're a Trekkie, then we have to have you on. And I think this is not the first time I've heard this. And it's true for me personally, too. I grew up as a kid loving Star Wars, and then kind of not switch teams, but like what, as I'm older now, e- even from mid twenties to mid thirties, right now, mm-hmm. I love Star Trek. I watch it like four or five times a week. I go back to DS Nine, I go back to Voyager, I go back to Next Generation, and I even watch Enterprise and love it. Some people like a lot of people don't yeah. like Enterprise, but, and I'm enjoying Discovery too.
2: I think for me, yeah. it comes down to Star Trek represents the world I want to live in. And then Star Wars is somewhere I'd like to go on vacation occasionally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's really
0: well put. Yeah, I love that, Jamie. Star Wars is definitely a fantasy for the child's mind. And Star Trek is a fantasy for the adult mind. Very inspirational. In yeah, yeah well, we, exactly.
1: We draw inspiration from that, for sure. My partner and I, who who is also enjoying revisiting Star Trek right now and is talking with me about you know collaborating on creating this this larger campus for a visionary approach to the future. And we, we look at those episodes where they go down to an M-class planet and there's a, there's a new colony that's homesteading and, and mm-hmm. they invoke some of these futuristic themes in the design. And we're like, well, maybe we can use some of those elements in a, in a modest way that would help transport people into a, this immersive experience.
0: Yeah. Taking people out of their world and into another world is a magical thing. And I think is why I love museums. Uh, why I love you know, art exhibits. I love going to the movies. I think that is at the baseline of what we're talking about here. It's transporting someone somewhere else using a film or a photograph or an object. And why I wanted to talk to you, Peter, on this podcast because I have a fascination with artifacts from the space program and from film and television. Do, is there an intrinsic value to these objects, or is it is it art? Is it is it entertainment? Is it an antique? Is it, I don't like, how do you categorize this, these pieces? I, I think it can be all those things. I, I, I don't think it's, I think
1: it's uh, dynamic in that way. I mean, I, mm-hmm. it depends on your definition of art, which mm-hmm. could be a, a lifetime conversation for some people, but I, right. I, I think that there, most of these items have an element of art and, and are creative expressions is right. probably a, a broader, more generous term, or less defined term, is creative expressions, and they, I think, they're historic. I think, sure, to some people, there's there's a nostalgic value, or there's a there's a value because they're rare. For us, we were able to acquire things for more affordable prices because they weren't as attractive to other people. Large mm-hmm. items like rusty playground rockets or six foot tall storefront. Robots don't fit into most people's homes. And because we had this barn, we were able to get some of these items for a fraction of what a, a Japanese tin robot would cost at auction or a toy show. Yeah. And we know that those are heavily collected and therefore well-preserved. So we didn't feel as much of an urgency to you know, rescue those things.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't know
1: if that sense. answers your question, but I, I mean, I think I think there's cultural value. I think there's historic value. And right now, I I think, I mean, sure, some people are collectors and they buy and sell because they want to make money and they make a cash profit on it. I, right. I want to tell a story that, I, that is valuable to the progress of humanity in a, in a good direction, in a positive direction.
2: Yeah, and I think that, you know, as you said, there's a lot of definitions of art that we could toss around. But at the end of the day, if it's something that makes you feel and makes you think something, then I think that's one of the most important definitions. And certainly the things in this collection have the ability to do that.
1: I think it's a really great way of putting it. Thank you.
2: Peter, thank you so
0: much for being on the show. And I know that this is just the beginning of Supercluster's relationship with you and the Space Age Museum. And I know that we're going to find some ways to work together. And I'm excited to have you on a Star Trek podcast coming up soon. And we'll we'll dive into that and I'll pick your brain on Trekkie stuff. But Jamie, do you have any more questions for Peter?
2: No, I think that covers it for me. This has been great.
0: Yeah, this is a great conversation, Peter. And I thank you again for coming on.